the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Thursday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us. James Blinn producing Clark Hilton Engineering, today's program. Today we're going to talk with Than Bennett. His book is titled My Fame, His Fame, Aiming Your Life and Influence Toward the Glory of God. Now, Than Bennett might sound familiar to you, the name. Um, he's a longtime member of the National Community Church family in Washington, D.C., but he's also the Director of Government Affairs for the American Center for Law and Justice and a regular on-air contributor to the daily syndicated radio program heard right here on KPDQ. So he'll be joining us later this hour to talk about his book. We're also going to talk with Jeremy Dice, a Special Counsel for Litigation and Communications with First Liberty. We're going to talk about uh, attacks on uh, prayers in legislative sessions and what's happening across the country with that regard and whether or not the Supreme Court is weighed in on the subject. We'll get into that uh, in the next hour of today's program. First of uh, some of the day's headlines, President uh, Trump joined the growing backlash facing Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer for remarks he made about Associate Supreme Court Justices Neil Gorsuch and Brett Kavanaugh at a pro-choice rally on Wednesday, saying the senator must pay a severe price for his comments. There can be few things worse in a civilized, law-abiding nation than a United States senator openly for all to see and hear threatening the Supreme Court or its justices. The president uh, tweeted, uh, this is what Chuck Schumer just did. He may pay a severe price for this, which is sort of echoing what Chuck Schumer had said about the two justices, that they would pay a severe price for a decision that had not yet been made, but uh, oral arguments were heard at the time he was making his brazen statement. In an interview on Wednesday night, the president added that Schumer's remarks were not protected by congressional immunity, adding, if there were a Republican, um, you would see really bad things happening. I'm not sure what that meant, but that's a quote. The controversy started earlier in the day at a pro-choice rally hosted by the Center for Reproductive Rights. When um, uh, the uh, when Schumer ominously singled out Trump's two Supreme Court picks, I want to tell you, Gorsuch, I want to tell you, Kavanaugh, you have released the whirlwind and you will pay a price. Now, the, uh, there was no whirlwind because they were hearing oral arguments. What he was suggesting is if you um, cast your ballot, if you will, in a particular direction, there'll be something to pay for that. You have released the whirlwind and you will pay the price. He warned you won't know what hit you. If you go forward with these awful decisions, and again, it's not clear which particular decisions he was referring to, given that no decision on this piece of, um, well, this um, question had yet been issued. Well, the comment started a stunning back and forth between Schumer and Chief Justice John Roberts in a rare but stunning rebuke. The Chief Justice responded to Schumer in a written statement obtained uh, by media. He said the following, in part, Justices know that criticism comes with the territory, but threatening statements of this sort from the highest levels of government are not only inappropriate, they are dangerous. All members of the court will continue to do their job without fear or favor from whatever quarter. Now, it's not uncommon for justices to be 
criticized, but to be threatened, that's a different uh, threshold. Schumer spokesperson Justin Goodman quickly responded by accusing Roberts of bias. He insisted Schumer was addressing Republican lawmakers when he said a price would be paid, although he used the names of the two sitting justices. And even though Schumer had explicitly uh, made that uh, that point for Justice Roberts to follow the right wing's deliberate misinterpretation of what Schumer said while remaining silent when President Trump attacked Justice Sotomayor and um, Ruth Bader Ginsburg last week shows Justice Roberts does not just call balls and strikes. Goodman added, well, we're talking about the difference between criticism, which is common for the justices and a threat. Um, In any event, it wasn't just the Republicans on the right wing, as uh, the uh, senator's spokesman said. It it came from a number of Democrats as well. Meanwhile, a Facebook employee who worked in the company's Seattle office has been diagnosed with coronavirus as the death toll in the state climbed to 10. Facebook and other tech uh, giants took measures to protect their workers. Facebook alerted employees about the contractor who was last in the company's Stadium East office on the 21st of February. The office will be closed until Monday, and employees of the social media company are encouraged to work from home until the end of the month due to coronavirus fears. Microsoft is also taking steps to protect its roughly 50,000 employees in the Seattle area from the new coronavirus, which has affected at least 39 people in the region, considered the epicenter of the outbreak in the U.S. The tech company advised all employees in the Seattle and San Francisco Bay area to work from home until the 25th, in accordance with guidance from local health officials. Well, FBI officials involved in the wiretapping of former Trump campaign advisor Carter Page have been um, blocked, at least temporarily, from appearing before the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court in regard to other cases in rebuke that um, exceeded the remedial recommendations made by the independent monitor recently appointed by the court. The decisions by uh, decision, rather singular, by James Bosberg, chief justice of the secretive court created under the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, comes as Congress faces a March 15th deadline on whether to renew three FBI national security surveillance and investigative tools that were enacted after 9-11. Elizabeth Folk. Spelled F-A-U-X, Focahontas Warren has dropped out of the 2020 race, according to National Review, who coined the phrase. As uh, U.S. virus uh, deaths are increasing to 11, the feds are investigating the nursing home near Seattle as to how it began there. And California is declaring a state of emergency after the first death in that state. Defense Department linguist in Iraq uh, charged with espionage shared a secret name with romantic interest rather shared secret names with a romantic interest. And the FISA court ban official involved in the Carter Page wiretraps from seeking surveillance is ongoing. Wisconsin High School has closed their gender-neutral bathroom after alleged sexual assault. One of the fears that was raised at the time, they were debating whether or not it was appropriate in a high school setting. And a woman has discovered um, a plant she'd been watering for two years was actually plastic. How does that happen? Maybe it was just really... Really, really well done. On this day in history, 1770, the Boston Massacre takes place in British uh, as British soldiers who were, have uh, been taunted by a, a crowd of colonists open fire, killing five. You see the movie, the miniseries on John Adams, which is excellent. You can see that history. On this day in history, 1868, the impeachment trial of President Andrew Johnson begins in the U.S. Senate with Chief Justice Salmon um, Chase presiding. Johnson is the first U.S. president to be impeached, is accused of high crimes and misdemeanors stemming from his attempt 
to fire Secretary of War Edwin Stanton. On this day in history, 1953, Soviet dictator Joseph Stalin dies after three decades in power, leaving in his wake millions of deaths. On this day in history, 1970, the Treaty of the Non-Proliferation of Nuclear Weapons goes into effect after 43 nations ratify it. Finally, on this day in history, 2014, Lois Lerner, the former Internal Revenue Service official at the heart of the controversy over the the agency's targeting of conservative groups, once again refuses to answer questions at a House hearing. Well, Senator Elizabeth Warren dropped out of the 2020 presidential race today after a disappointing Super Tuesday in which she failed to win even her home state. We'll tell you more about that in just a few moments. Also coming up this hour, we'll talk with Than Bennett, author of My Fame, His Fame, Aiming Your Life and Influence Toward the Glory of God. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 19 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Coming up later this hour, we'll talk with Fan Bennett, my fame, his fame, aiming your life and influence toward the glory of God. Well, as mentioned, Senator Elizabeth Warren dropped out of the 2020 presidential race today after a disappointing Super Tuesday in which she failed to win her home state, development that could boost Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders' campaign by making him the lone progressive standard bearer in the Democratic field. But while making that widely expected announcement outside her Cambridge home with her husband, Bruce, apparently by her side. The Massachusetts senator declined to make an endorsement at that stage. Not today, Warren said, noting that she wanted to um, she wanted more time to think about the decision. Well, the non-decision was pretty striking, considering every other candidate to bow out in the last week has endorsed uh, for former Vice President Joe Biden. Uh, Warren was considered closer to Sanders, at least ideologically, but they had uh, clashed in recent weeks, and it remains unclear whether she is leaning toward one candidate or the other. I will not be running for president in 2020, she said, but I guarantee I will stay in the in the fight for hardworking folks across the country. We've gotten the short end of the stick over and over, she vowed moments earlier. Appearing to choke up, she also spoke to how the presidential field is now male-dominated, with the exception of Representative Tulsi Gabbard, and the prospect for a history-making first female president are essentially gone. One of the hardest parts of this is... Uh, Uh, All those uh, pinky promises and all those little girls who are going to have to wait four more years, Warren said, her voice cracking, referring to promises she often makes when uh, with young girls on the campaign trail about women running for president. That's going to be hard. I have uh, those pinky promises. Seriously, well, Warren also addressed sexism in the race and promised she'd have more to say. Her exit essentially leaves the race as a one on one battle between Sanders and Biden, who's surging Uh, After claiming a stunning 10 victories on Super Tuesday, Warren first revealed the uh, decision in a late uh, morning, all staff on um, on Thursday. I want all of you to hear it first and I want you to hear it straight from me. Today, I'm suspending our campaign for president. And that is precisely what she did. Well, as mentioned earlier, uh, Chuck Schumer has been in a bit of trouble. Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell called out the Minority Leader Chuck Schumer on the Senate floor today, this morning, for his controversial warning a day earlier that the Supreme Court Justice Neil Gorsuch and Brett Kavanaugh would pay a price for decisions in the abortion case they heard arguments for yesterday. There is nothing to call this except a threat, McConnell said. Well, Schumer made the statement during an abortion rights rally hosted by the Center for Reproductive Rights. To his credit, Chuck Schumer did uh, backtrack just a bit. He said he's, uh, what is he, from uh, Brooklyn, and that's the way we talk. He didn't exactly apologize or retract the statement, but uh, suggested that although he used the justice's name specifically, 
uh, in uh, connection with the threat that he was referring to a political price that would be paid by Republicans. While some in the media spent much of Super Tuesday reveling in Joe Biden's awakening from political death, they entirely missed the untold story of Super Tuesday, President Trump's record-breaking vote counts and turnout. Now, it might not seem significant because uh, he has no opponent, but it does uh, indicate uh, that his base is... um, is excited and motivated. Despite being an uncontested incumbent, the president managed to break several turnout and vote count records in blue states and key swing states. In Vermont and Minnesota, Trump's vote totals beat every past incumbent's total in the last four decades. In Maine, the president's vote total bested every primary candidate's total since before President Ronald Reagan. In Massachusetts, the story was similar, with Trump aggregating a higher vote total than past incumbent Republicans since before Reagan. And in deeply blue California, with 82% of precincts reporting, President Trump collected nearly 1.4 million votes. Turnout numbers similarly showcase the enthusiasm of Republican voters. In Colorado, for example, Republican turnout for Trump on Tuesday was greater than the past three Republican primaries combined. The event uh, um, evident enthusiasm for the president was made clear in red states, in swing states, even in blue states on Tuesday evening, indicating that the Republican Party is more unified than ever before and is growing in numbers. Indeed, Tuesday night's results are reflective of the data that the Trump campaign collects in its lead up to rallies. The campaign routinely finds that about a quarter of those who register to attend Trump rallies are Democrats and around 10 percent to 15 percent did not vote in 2016. For example, in Nevada, the most recent blue state where the Trump campaign held a rally, 27 percent of rally registrants were black or Latino. 32 percent of registrants overall did not vote in 2016. Tuesday Tuesday night's results, combined with rally data, indicate that the Trump coalition is growing larger and is more energetic than ever before. Meanwhile, the Democratic Party is in complete disarray, less so now than before Super Tuesday. Former Vice President Joe Biden is surging as Senator Bernie Sanders continues to collect a competitive number of delegates. The chaos on the left could very well materialize into a brokered convention in which party elites or superdelegates could decide on the convention floor who the party's nominee should be. With former South Bend, uh, Indiana Mayor Pete Buttigieg, Senator Amy Klobuchar, uh, dropping out just before Super Tuesday, endorsing Biden alongside former Representative Beto O'Rourke. It's no wonder that Sanders supporters feel, well, aggrieved at the idea of backroom deals depriving Sanders of the nomination. And while Democrats duke it out in a chaotic process that could end in a floor fight in Milwaukee, and while many in the media ignore the energy behind the Trump movement, Republican voters remain coalesced behind the president. As some in the media spin the narrative of Democrats on the rise, many of the same pundits who found themselves stunned by President Trump's victory in November of 2016 will find themselves even more stunned on November 3rd, 2020. Well, we will see. We will see. Well, House Republicans had a good night to Tuesday night down ballot as well. As well where a powerful and incumbent fended off a well-funded primary challenger and the party picked up one African-American and several women candidates to challenge Democrats this fall. In Texas, Congresswoman Kay Granger, who leads the House Appropriations Committee, came out on top in a primary challenge from local conservative activist Chris Putnam in the state's 12th district. 
Putnam accused Granger of not being far enough aligned with President President Trump, despite having Trump's endorsement. The bidder race attracted a considerable amount of outside spending with a conservative club for growth sweeping in to oust Granger, while the House GOP leadership super PAC, the Congressional Leadership Fund, spent about $1.3 million to protect Granger. The incumbent congresswoman ultimately defeated Putnam with 58 percent of the vote to Putnam's 42. Elsewhere, House Republicans secured nominations for key recruits in their efforts to elect more women and minorities. In the Houston area's 7th District, conservative African-American Army veteran Wesley Hunt captured the nomination to challenge incumbent freshman uh, Democrat Representative Lizzie Fletcher, who flipped the seat just two years earlier. Both the Cook Political Report and Larry Sabato's Crystal Ball ranked the seat as leaning Democrat, making for a competitive race this fall with Hunt's nomination to claim the seat. Over in the state's uh, Dallas area, 32nd District, Republican voters nominated local business executive Genevieve Collins to face another freshman Democrat incumbent, Representative Colin Alred. Uh, Sabato's crystal ball lists the seat as likely Democrat, but the Cook Political Report identifies it as merely leaning Democratic. And in Texas' 24th district, also located in Dallas, serving Mayor Beth Van Dyne, uh, became another woman to join the GOP candidate ranks, capturing the nomination to compete for an open seat rated as a toss-up, being vacated by Rep- uh, Republican Congressman Kenny Marchant. Van Dyne uh, won the contest with more than 64% of the vote. Further east in North Carolina, real estate agent Linda Bennett will move into a May runoff election to face small businessman Madison Cawthorn. The uh, winner will proceed to the November general in a bid to replace retiring chairman of the House Freedom Caucus, Mark Meadows, who has endorsed Bennett in the state's uh, reliably Republican 11th district. Well, Tuesday's results give Republicans reason to be optimistic about their lineup of candidates in position to take back the House in November. So it's interesting. All the time and attention is focused on the presidential uh, candidates, but there are Uh, Names on the ballot that are down ballot that are just as significant that will determine the makeup of Congress in 2021. Well, President Trump on Thursday said his administration is moving forward with withholding funds from sanctuary cities after an appeals court ruled that such a move was legal. Part of a broad push by the administration to end the controversial policies that it says makes America less safe. As per recent federal court ruling, the federal government will be withholding funds from sanctuary cities. They should change their status and go non-sanctuary, he said. Do not protect criminals. Well, the Second Circuit Court of Appeals in New York last month overturned a lower court ruling that stopped the administration's 2017 move to withhold grant money from the Edward Brine Memorial Justice Assistance Grants Program, which dispenses over $250 million a year to state and local criminal justice efforts. That decision conflicts with rulings from other appeals courts across the country concerning sanctuary policies, indicating a Supreme Court review is ultimately likely and expected. Coming up, we'll talk with Fan Bennett, My Fame, His Fame, Aiming Your Life and Influence Toward the Glory of God. We'll get into that with him in just a few moments. And uh, in the five o'clock hour, we'll talk with Jeremy Dice, Special Counsel for Litigation and Communications with First Liberty. We'll talk about attacks on, I said liberty as if it had a D. Listen to me. Liberty. Uh, we'll talk about attacks on legislative prayers. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 34 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, 86% of us use social media every day, and nearly three-quarters do so multiple times in the course of a day. 
Well, interestingly, people are using various platforms to get noticed. The overwhelming hunger for attention leads people to take chances or risks they never would if they didn't have an audience. Well, Than Bennett is the director of government affairs at the American Center for Law and Justice. He says platforms like uh, and influence are accepted measures of success. We live for the sound of applause and the adoration of the crowd. Well, in his new book, My Fame, His Fame, Aiming Your Life and Influence Toward the Glory of God, he suggests we have become so obsessed with being famous that many people are actually quite lonely. We try to be famous when we long to be known. It's a far better thing to be known than to be famous. We'll talk about the difference. Uh, We've become narcissistic and obsessed with self, he says, but we desperately need God's fame to roll through the land. We desperately need our depravity and chaos to be met with holiness, order, and the power of our God. Well, he encourages readers to make God known throughout the land, to declare his fame rather than to seek our own. My fame, his fame, is a reminder to every Christian that our lives and our choices are about bringing God glory, declaring his goodness, and recognizing that his fame is far more important than our own. Well, Fan Bennett is the Director of Government Affairs for the American Center for Law and Justice and is a regular on-air contributor to the daily syndicated radio broadcast, Jay Seculo Live, heard right here on KPDQ. He is the author of In Search of the King and is motivated to write by a belief that God calls those in all walks of life to draw others to a saving knowledge of Jesus. Fan Bennett, thank you so much for joining us. Georgine, thank you so much for having me. I think it's been a few years since we have talked, but I am I'm delighted to be back. Thank you for having me. Oh, absolutely. Where have you been? <laughs> <laughs> well, I've been on that uh, uh, Capitol Hill, Washington, D.C., just like you said. I was yeah. I your rundown there of the news and uh, those topics you were talking about, Georgine, those have been occupying my days. Yeah. Well, I'm surprised you have time to talk with us today, so I'm grateful that you've taken the time. Well, let's talk about what it means to proclaim the fame of God in our time, in a season of of life in which we are so preoccupied with our own fame. Yeah, aren't we? You know, Georgine, I really think we have an obsession with fame in our culture and uh, most of that obsession is wrapped up in a very negative uh, version of fame. It's the fame that we see around us. It's the fame that the superstar Madonna called. Uh, she said that she wasn't going to be satisfied until she was famous like God. And it's a fame that's wrapped up in platforms and likes and visibility and notoriety. And uh, Georgine, it's, it's, it's a self-absorbed fame, and it's one that will destroy you in the end. Um, and and I, I was very concerned about seeing this obsession with fame in our culture, and it's really what led me to write this book. But really what I found when searching the scriptures, Georgine, is that I, I, I really do believe that the reason we are so drawn to fame, even though we've distorted what it really is, is because we were created for fame, Georgine. Now, it's not the fame that we've been talking about here. It's a fame that, that speaks to the glory and the fame and the fo- uh, power of our God. But it's the one that he talked about uh, to Isaiah in Isaiah 43, where he said, The people I formed for myself, that they may proclaim my praise. So I got to tell you, I, I started writing this book really from a standpoint of concern about this obsession with fame. And what I really realized is it, it, it's not so much an aversion of fame that we should have, it's a redefinition, uh, uh, Georgine, because we were created, we were hardwired to be vessels that would uh, be able to acquire fame and channel fame and amplify fame. The difference is we've been trying to do that for ourselves 
when we were created to amplify the fame of the creator. So um, it, it's a little bit of a reset of definition, and it's, and it's kind of unlearning the fame we know and then reapplying it for the purpose uh, with which we were created. It's another form of counterfeit that we should be quite familiar with uh, in this, uh, this life. What is it that you think people are looking for when they make themselves this, this focus of attention, when they're looking um, to be the, the center of, of fame, if you will? Yeah, I honestly think it's to live a life that is beyond themselves. I think I think we have become so narcissistic because we want our lives to mean something, and we think if that we can get other people to notice us or to affirm our accomplishments, that we will be validated. And, and Georgine, that's just not the way we were created. We were created not for ourselves, but for Him. And then this is the beautiful part of it, though. We were given a job to do, and we were uh, entangled in His great purpose uh, for for uh, for our creation, you know, one of the main stories in the book is rooted around this Old Testament prophet Habakkuk, who mm-hmm. you know most of us don't pay much attention to. Uh, but Habakkuk was this irreverent prophet. He he lived in times much like ours, where he looked around and he was frustrated with what he saw, and he did something that was pretty atypical for a prophet. He he actually confronted God with it and blamed God for all that was happening because God was absent, but. I'm so fascinated, Georgie, by the the response that Habakkuk got from God. God wasn't frustrated with Habakkuk for confronting him. In fact, he he welcomed it. He tolerated it. But this is what was uh, so telling to me. God's response to Habakkuk was that my fame has been here all along. It's ready to help you address the cultural problems you see around you, but it's waiting on something. It's waiting on you, because I have designed you to be the vehicle, to be the transport for my fame. And it's just, it's, it's just so amazing to think about this, Georgine, that he would create us and desire relationship with us so much that his purpose for addressing the cultural needs around us, I actually think it can be stayed if we aren't willing to step in and carry it because he's waiting to entangle it with us. So, you know, what greater privilege than being called into the into the center of that connection? Uh, but I really do think that's what will will trigger a move of God through our land is us being willing to carry it carry it forward. Now you write that we desperately need God's fame to roll through the land. What does that look like? So I I really think it it, it is when we step into this idea of being the connective tissue uh, for God's fame. You know we. We look through Scripture and we see a lot of different commands, Georgine, that we are supposed to step into. We're supposed to love our neighbor. We're supposed to confront injustice. We're supposed to feed the hungry, uh, give drink to the thirsty, uh, visit the prisoner, clothe the naked. On down the line, you can go with all of the commandments. Um, but, you know, that only happens if if we carry it forward. I think about think about the, the example of, of visiting the prisoner. You know, the answer is that prisoner needs God's presence in his or her life. But they're not confronted with God's presence unless we visit them. The, the hungry aren't fed unless we feed them. The thirsty don't have a drink unless we are the ones that carry a drink to them. So so honestly, uh, what it looks like for God's fame to roll through the land is when His people, who are called to His purposes, actually step forward and, and start carrying it. So I, I think just for so long, I have seen these things as detached. I have seen God's presence in the culture as one thing, and then my following Jesus Christ as another thing. And Jordan, they're, they're the same thing. I mean, if we want if we want a mighty move of God, it's going to require us being in and being the tangibility of His fame, being the connective tissue, so that a world that you know lives in a very tangible space 
is able to connect with something that might seem a little bit more intangible uh, if you don't know it in a personal way. Yeah. We revel in our culture today in likes and social media attention, building platforms, managing our image. Do you think we are a nation of narcissists as a consequence? And uh, and what will it take for our attention, particularly those who are currently in the household of faith, to turn our attention away from our, ourselves and back to God so that we can see his fame roll out through the land? Yeah, I think it's going to take that redefinition of what it means to be successful or what it means to acquire fame. And, you know, I, I would just maybe tell you a quick story, Georgine. We, mm-hmm. our, our family has the amazing privilege to provide uh, interim care for newborns who are headed towards adoptive families. I'm actually... I'm actually doing this interview with you from out in my truck because we have a newborn inside, and I was afraid <laughs> that he was going to interrupt our interview. But the reason I tell you that is when we were going through the training for this, uh, one of the things that we were taught is how critical it is during the early stages of a child's life to form the ability to bond, so to form the ability to attach. And they did a study on three sets of children, children who had healthy attachment, children who uh, had suffered abuse, and then children who were neglected. And the amazing thing, Georgine, is they found out that the children who suffered abuse actually fared better than the children who were neglected. And the the reason for that was at least the children who had had endured abuse had the the grooves, the etchings in their brain that was formed from attachment. Now, it would have to heal over time, but the children who had been neglected didn't have those grooves, didn't have those etchings at all. And here was what the researcher told us when, when they were going through the training. She said, Attachment is what fuels all the other processes of the brain. And as I sat there in that secular training, Georgina, I thought, well, of course it does, because our creator designed us to attach to him. And it's that attachment that fuels all of the other things that he would call us to do. So as you and I look to make a difference in our world and look to you know, heal the broken culture that is around us, I, I would just caution us. Yes, there's a lot we're called to do, Georgina, but... None of it will do any will be of any worth unless it's fueled by an attachment to the one who made us to step into those places. So I, I really think that's the key. Attach first, abide in him, hide yourself in him, and then he will fuel the ability to go out and address the needs of the culture. Mm. You draw a distinction between the desire for fame and the, the longing to be known. What is the difference and explain why that's important? Sure, absolutely. So the desire to be famous, at least in that personal sense that we talked about at the beginning of this conversation, is is self-rooted, right? It's getting eyes to be drawn to us. It's attention onto ourself. It's self-adulation, uh, self-worship, if you will. Uh, being known by our Creator is the exact reverse. It is it is being vulnerable to Him. It is it is having Him to know. Uh, every part of ourselves, it's it's confessing to him what it is and then enabling him to chart our path and enabling him uh, to, uh, honestly, I mean, even in, even in the realm of notoriety and fame, sometimes he will elevate us so that he will be glorified, and then sometimes he will hide us uh, for, for a purpose. So, Georgine, I think it's really just submitting to a reversal of our natural human instincts. It's not an elevation of ourself. But it's trying to aim every leverage, every influence, every platform that we might have uh, towards his glory and his fame and lifting his name high. I got to tell you, it's it's something that especially in the political space that I work in, I'm I'm very much a work in process. Um, Hmm. I I think we all are. 
But changing that intent internally and reminding myself each and every day why I'm here and what I should be aimed on, um, it it certainly has changed the way I look at even everyday tasks. Yeah. We're going to take a quick break, but we will continue our conversation. Again, we're talking with Than Bennett. My fame, his fame. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, continuing my conversation with Than Bennett. His book is titled My Fame, His Fame, Aiming Your Life and Influence Toward the Glory of God. The book is published by Thomas Nelson. And Than, you might recognize the name or the voice. He's the Director of Government Affairs for the American Center for Law and Justice. He's also a regular on-air contributor to the daily syndicated radio broadcast, J. Seculo Live, which is heard here on KPDQ. I'm just glad you carved out a little time sitting in your truck <laughs> to have a conversation <laughs> with us. <laughs> Appreciate Thank you it. for having me. Yeah. <laughs> um, let's, let's talk about how um, most people are impacted when they gain the fame or influence that they're looking for, um, imagining that that is going to provide for them some sense of being known and, uh, I suppose, fulfillment yeah, no, absolutely. I think when that happens, uh, Georgine, we often just get so desperate to keep it. We will do anything to keep the eyes of the people around us uh, on us, and it really changes our behavior, changes uh, the things that motivate us to make decisions. And one of the ways I talk about in the book on how we can gauge where we're succeeding in this is where we are setting our eyes. And what I, what I mean by that is if we're truly looking to our Savior, if we're truly looking to Jesus Christ to uh, to, to make our decisions and to, to base decisions based on how he is going to react, uh, then we're going to be willing to make decisions that are unpopular with the crowd that is around us or with, you know, maybe out of step with the culture or the culture will, will view us as peculiar. But if our eyes are set on the crowd that is around us, like, like Pilate's eyes were when he was trying Jesus, we are going to make decisions that are based on how they are going to react, regardless if they're consistent with God's word or regardless if they're consistent with God's call in our life. So I really think the challenge here, uh, whether you're, you know, as famous as the president or, you know, working a minimum wage job and feeling that you're anonymous, really the, the requirement here is the same. Where are your eyes set and in whose eyes are you trying to find favor? And Georgina, if I think we get that, that small uh, posture correct, then we're going to make decision ba- uh, decisions based on the correct motivation, and it's going to carry us towards his fame and ultimately elevate his fame rather than our own. It's always shocking when someone that is famous uh, confesses in a moment of candor that they are lonely, that they're unfulfilled. And I suppose it shouldn't be surprising to us because it, it's consistent. But why do so many famous people suffer from loneliness? I'll never forget an interview with Johnny Carson, who was at the height of his uh, of his profession uh, in a, a moment of candor, talked about how um, he, you know, he couldn't live with the wives that he had had and how his money had not fulfilled him and the emptiness that he experienced. Why is that the case? What does it tell us? Well, I mean, there's an epidemic of loneliness yes. among the famous. There really is. The, the more famous you get, actually, um, by and large, the lonelier you get if you're not rooted in the right thing. And the, the example I use in the book, Georgine, is actually from the famous actress uh, Claire Dane. She said that fame doesn't end loneliness. And you would hear something very similar. You mentioned Johnny Carson from, uh, from many of the famous. And, and here's the, the real reason why, because they're, they're surrounded by people. They have the adoration of the masses uh, the, the, as the desperation or the inclination uh, to retain that fame from the masses, from the crowd grows. 
that's where their focus goes deeper and deeper. And they're doing true relationships. I mean, uh, forget a relationship with the creator for a moment, which is what they were created to do. Uh, just genuine relationship with other people around them. Those fade away because there's a, there's a fear of being vulnerable. So, um, look, I, I think it's most evident among the famous, but I think if, if, if many of us were truly honest about the condition of our heart and about the, uh, the way that we act, I think that we are in many ways afflicted with some version of the same thing uh, because when we decline to root ourselves in him on a daily basis that we should. But here's, here's the hope in all of that. Again, the reason we were created was to commune and have relationship with the Almighty God, the creator of the universe. So um, when we start to drift from that, uh, a refocus in that direction is going to solve a lot of those problems. Mm. You write that you believe God's fame is gathering, it's smoldering on the horizon. In spite of the polarization in our nation, do you believe revival is at hand? And what's facilitating that if, in fact, you do? With all my heart, I really do. I I really see people waking up to a desire to live for more than just, you know, whatever the next thing is, the next promotion, the next uh, political campaign. I really do think we're on the edge of of carrying the next move of God to our culture. And I would tell you this, I think one of the catalysts is going to be that we as believers um, no longer settle for a narrow answer. And I would just give you a very quick example. And Genesis 18, uh, God is talking with Abraham about a punishment he's going to bring on the city of Sodom. And Sodom deserved the punishment, deserved the destruction. And if I'm in Abraham's place, I probably agree with God. Let's go do this. Uh, but not Abraham. Abraham steps in and negotiates with God on behalf of the righteous remnant that might exist in, in Sodom. He goes back to God six different times mm-hmm. asking if God will save the city for a lower number. And, and I would I would just tell you, uh, God didn't walk away from that negotiation until Abraham walked away, Georgine. And, and that's what I see around me. I see believers stepping forward and being willing to go to God to advocate for a righteous remnant um, and, and being less eager to see destruction rain down. Uh, I think that is going to facilitate the next mighty move of God. It's going to be through his people. God does wait for his people, uh, but God's eager to do it, and I see more and more around me stepping forward into it. We see time and again throughout Scripture that God delights in using the least expected people to accomplish his purposes. If we're looking for the next Billy Graham, if we're looking for you know a famous pastor to lead us, that's less likely than what we see throughout Scripture. Um, why do you think that is the case? Uh, because he gets the glory. Yeah. Because he gets the glory when he uses people who are not qualified. And really, the truth is, when you step back from it, uh, we might think that, the, that that Billy Graham is more qualified than we are to lead that. But in, in truth, uh, God is just looking for willing vessels. He's looking for vessels that when he uses them, uh, we will point back to his glory. So uh, I, I do think that it's more likely that maybe an, an obscure name would be named, but really that is just because uh, that obscure name might be uh, an easier nut to crack, if you will, for being willing to return that glory to God. I would I would tell the person listening, if you do hold notoriety, it doesn't make you less qualified, Georgine. He's just looking for hearts and vessels who are willing to 
I'll point only back to him when God does use it. You know, if, if he chooses to use me today, um, and, and I allow that to elevate my name rather than his, well, then that won't accomplish his purpose. So he's first looking for hearts that are yielded to him and aimed only for his glory. That's the vessel that he can use. Amen. Once again, the book is titled My Fame, His Fame, Aiming Your Life and Influence Toward the Glory of God. Van Bennett, thank you so much for talking with us. Thank you so much, Georgina. I really appreciate it. Now go back in the house and take care of that baby. <laughs> I will do it. I will do it. <laughs> okay, bye-bye. Bye now. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, News and Traffic, up next. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the second hour of The Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us. Well, opening public meetings with prayer is such a long-standing American tradition that it's puzzling why some continue to seek the demise of the practice based on subjective claims that such prayers are inappropriate and divisive. So writes Jeremy Dice, my next guest. He's First Liberty Institute's, uh, he works with First Liberty Institute, uh, and he joins us to explain why the increasing attacks on legislative prayer are dangerous and out of line with American tradition. Thank you so much for joining us once again. Hey, my pleasure. Thanks for having me, Georgine. Well, it is somewhat puzzling, but I suppose it's not altogether surprising that in our contrarian culture that there are those who oppose uh, the long-standing American tradition of opening uh, legislative meetings or city councils or county councils or whatever uh, with a uh, with a prayer. Tell us a little bit about what's happening across country. Yeah, it's it's a strange thing, and it puzzles me because this is one of the more settled areas of the First Amendment that uh, legislative prayer has been something that's been going on since really before we were even a country. Uh, and Chief Justice Berger, back in the 1980s, in the case of Marsh versus Chambers, the first time the court had to consider legislative prayer and the constitutionality of it, he said that not only is this part of the fabric of our society, but the men who were considering and phrasing and forming the words of the First Amendment, they did so only after being opened in prayer by a legislative chaplain. And so the guys who formed the First Amendment didn't seem to have a big deal, a big problem with it all. So it, it puzzles me why we're still having to consider this issue even down today. But what we're seeing is that the uh, those who want to just simply drive religion out of everything, but especially out of these legislative prayers, uh, what we're seeing is that they're kind of giving up on actually trying to cite a case when, when doing so. So a little similar letter like they always do, but those letters are getting really thin on the law because there's not a whole lot of law to cite to it for their side. Instead, they're advancing a really subjective test, which is to say, they, they, they say that those prayers are, quote, inappropriate and divisive. Well, it's really hard to understand how something would actually be divisive that once was called the part of the fabric of our society and such a longstanding tradition that, as the court said just a few months ago in the case of American Legion versus AHA, which we litigated at the Supreme Court, they said that these kinds of religious activities now bear a presumption of constitutionality. And so I think if you get one of these letters, if you're a city councilman or county commissioner, I think maybe you just need to put it in the, you know, in the trash can beside your desk because it's not worth a whole lot. You wrote a column for the Daily Signal in which you cited a series of news reports um, that appear just since uh, late January. Can you tell us some of the challenges in uh, Venice, Florida, Ohio, Las Vegas, and elsewhere? Yeah, someone will complain about it. So down in, in Venice, Florida, someone sent a letter and complained about the practice of that city council opening up uh, their meeting with prayer. We, we saw uh, in Connersville, Indiana, uh, it was actually uh, someone from a different town that came in and complained about that town's practice of legislative prayer and wanted it to stop as if you know someone from out of town really had a voice into what was going on there. 
Uh, you had, even in the state of West Virginia, two different times, you had the, the state of West Virginia and the legislature, the House of Delegates there, had a 30-second prayer, and, and someone complained about that issue, even though that's that's a, a very clear uh, opportunity for, for legislative prayer. But north of that, in Wheeling, West Virginia, the city council saw that too. And, and that's where it really gets disappointing, because just like in Wheeling, as in um, Clark County, South, or I'm sorry, Clark County, Nevada, and Las Vegas, both of those, one was a county uh, city council, one was a school board, they both gave up. I didn't get a chance to send a letter to them or talk to them and, and tell them what the law actually says. They just simply ended the practice of legislative prayer. Look, I, as a litigator of the First Amendment, I got to tell you, one of the most dispiriting things that can possibly be done to me is for us to fight really hard to preserve these religious freedoms and then have city councils and school boards like this just simply give up without even the weakest level of a fight. Had we been able to get involved, I'm, I'm positive we could have we could have maintained that longstanding tradition in their communities. I wish we could have helped out. Now, is that part of the strategy uh, to um, issue a, an objection, and then the expectation is they can't afford the time or the money to to defend the practice, and so they give in rather quickly to avoid the litigation that would likely follow? That's exactly what's going on. That's exactly right. That they. They get this letter that looks almost like a demand letter, and they might get in trouble. And there's kind of this assumption that is uh, put into or this uh, inference within the letter that says, if you don't fix this, we're going to sue you. Well, the chances are, you know, better of me getting struck by a bus crossing the street than they are getting an actual an actual lawsuit filed on these things. Look, if you're a city councilman or a county commissioner, here's the good news for you. Not only is the law really strong on this issue, but if you call us, we can defend you. And the good news is we don't charge for our services. So you're not taking any taxpayer dollars to pay a lawyer like us to come in and say, yeah, this practice is perfectly constitutional and we'll defend you in the court of law if, uh, if they actually, in the rare event, would actually file a lawsuit. In any of the cases where they've already given in, do you have any uh, expectation that now knowing what uh, the courts have already said, that they're likely to be restored? Well, you know, that's the nice thing about the political process is that uh, if the voters in that area, take Clark County, for instance, if they change their school board, I, I've already seen some comments in the press by by, uh, yeah, by voters who are bothered by the fact that their school board members that they elected just laid down and gave up without a fight. Uh, they can change those school board members. They won't be there forever. They're certainly not uh, lifetime tenured kind of positions. And if they change those positions, they certainly can restart those those uh, those legislative prayers, and they can return to being part of the longstanding tradition of this country of of recognizing the proper role uh, that religion plays in public and, and the important role it plays within that meeting of solemnizing that event, of giving gravity to the business of governing, and, and being that help to the lawmakers themselves to kind of unify before they get down to that, what, the, what the Justice Kennedy called the fractious business of governing. That's the important role that legislative prayer plays within our body politic. Yeah, yeah. Well, I would encourage our listeners, if they'd like to read your column, it's at the Daily Signal. Um, It's dated March the 3rd. We don't need divisive attacks on legislative prayer is the title. And I so appreciate um, the work that you do and then taking the time to inform us of of what's happening so that we can uh, perhaps let um, elected officials in our respective communities uh, know what the, the truth behind this is, what the courts have already said, and perhaps prevent uh, other municipalities from following uh, the example of those that you cite in your column. Oh, my pleasure. And, and folks, listen can go also to firstliberty.org and learn a whole lot more about 
not only our worship, but then religious liberty within legislators like this, but also within our houses of worship, our schools, our military, and the public square. We want to defend religious liberty for all Americans. Yeah, I so appreciate the work you do. Thank you, Jeremy Dice. Thank you. Appreciate it very much. Again, uh, Jeremy is a special counsel for litigation and communications with First Liberty, talking about attacks on legislative prayer. And while the courts, uh, the high court has already ruled uh, persuasively and several times on the subject, some lower municipal bodies are unaware of that. And it's uh, it seems to be somewhat easy to exploit that uh, ignorance in addressing the uh, the problem. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Of course, the thing everyone's talking about is the coronavirus. And uh, one uh, column written by Victor Davis Hansen points out that what we don't know about the coronavirus is what scares us. He writes, the recent spread of the coronavirus is causing a global panic. Our shared terror arises uh, not so much from the death toll of the new flu-like disease, more than 3,000 people have died worldwide, but from what we don't know about it. Experts at least agree that the virus originated in China, but Beijing authoritarian government hid information about its origins, spread, and its severity for weeks. Well, such duplicity only fanned the fears of a global plague, a hysteria not seen since the groundless fears of the Y2K global computer meltdown in the year 2000 or the political feeding frenzy during the Hurricane Katrina relief effort. While speculation followed that the coronavirus was a virulent or mutated superbug, had a uh, had it arisen uh, uh, naturally or escaped from a nearby military lab? Did it originate from a sick lab animal? A conspiracy theory arose that it was a manufactured virus that had escaped from scientists' botched efforts to create either a vaccine or a biological weapon. Is it the outbreak an indication that China scienti- uh, that Chinese scientists uh, are well behind their Western peers, at least in the areas of virology and bacteriology? Or is it a problem that Chinese culture still features outdated traditions such as open-air wet markets? Unfounded rumors spread that the virus may have originated in one of these markets where exotic animals such as bats and uh, other animals are still sold for human consumption. For all China's gleaming high-speed rail lines and new airports, hundreds of millions of Chinese still live in places with suspect food safety and waste disposal, the uh, historic incubators of epidemics. Well, the method of the contagion has been perplexing to experts. Why is the mortality rate for infected patients in Iran roughly double that of patients in countries like South Korea, Italy and Japan? Why have almost no children under 10 died of the infection? Are governments able to or unwilling to count the infected, given the similarities and symptoms between the coronavirus and various colds and flus? Does such uncertainty suggest we are undercounting the number of people sickened or killed by coronavirus? And it goes on. Are we instead overestimating its dangers? Thousands of patients may be already recovering from mild cases and perhaps never knew they were sick in the first place. That much, I believe, is probably true. Evidence suggests that only about 2% of patients will die after infection, as in the case of uh, other viral illnesses, the unfortunate victims are mostly elderly people with existing illnesses. Does that pattern suggest the coronavirus may be more like um, annual influenza outbreaks, deadly to thousands, but hardly the stuff of to shut down a global economy? 
The common theme of history's great plagues, Athens in 430 B.C., uh, Constantinople in 541, and the Black Plague of 1347 was that pre-industrial conditions of filth and ignorance helped spread what were usually bacterial diseases transmitted by lice, fleas, and rodents. Real plagues can certainly change history. The stricken Athens afterwards lacked the power to defeat Sparta and the Peloponnesian War. The Byzantine Emperor Justinian would never finish his half-completed dreams of a new reunited Rome. The Black Plague helped usher in the end of the Middle Ages. Great literature from Thucydides to um, Camus and others often chronicle the human suffering and especially the hysteria that follows from the breakout and the breakdown of civilized norms. Well, history also reminds us that nature remains unforgiving. We may live in the age of the Internet, smartphones and jet travel, but viruses are indifferent to so-called human progress. Modern life squeezes millions into cities as never before. Jet travel with its crowded planes and airports can spread disease from continent to continent within hours. Globalization is a two-edged sword. It may enrich billions of people, but the leveling effects of instant communication and travel can spread disease at a speed undreamed of in the past. The dissemination of sophisticated Western science to non-Western societies that lack advanced research centers may be increasingly suicidal. Borders are now considered passe in the age of globalization, but their enforcement reminds us that not all nations are alike. All sovereign peoples should have the right to take measures for their own safety well beyond the purview of the transnational elites. Finally, is it wise or safe to allow hundreds of thousands of homeless to live crowded among filth, vermin, and squalor on the sidewalks of America's major cities? The coronavirus threat and the unfounded hysteria that has accompanied it will pass, but the specter of a pandemic offers a timely warning to remember that we are not necessarily any more immune from volatile nature and humankind's paranoid response to it then were the ancients. Again, Victor Davis Hansen writing, what we don't know about the coronavirus is what scares us. Well, one of the things that they are encouraging us not to do is to touch our faces. Now, I've never been so aware of how often it just comes natural to touch my face than now. Uh, Rong Gong Lin II writes for the Los Angeles Times and points out that we all touch our faces with this new virus outbreak. However, the question is, how do we stop? It's unconscious for most of us. Touching our faces is a real health risk. So in this new world, not only is nose picking thought to be gross, but so is nose scratching, mouth touching and eye rubbing. All all it takes is just one virus to hitch a ride on a contaminated finger and slip into a body through a nostril or a wet part of the face. Then the virus can latch on, finding a human cell in the throat, nose or sinuses to hijack and destroy it, flooding the body with even more copies of itself. In critical illness, that one careless touch from an unwashed finger can begin a process of destroying lungs and kidneys and, in a worst case scenario, trigger septic shock, multiple organ failure and make it impossible to breathe on your own. Now, we're talking about in worst case uh, scenario cases, not the coronavirus. And yet it's still so, so hard to stop touching our faces. Much of the time it's spontaneous and we aren't even aware of it. One study caught medical students in class touching their faces about 23 times per hour on average. It's human nature to want to touch your face. Again, it's not necessarily um, conscious. There's a reason for that. Touching our face may actually be related to negative feelings, a feeling that when you're, we fail to achieve a goal or aren't satisfied, according to a research article published by the journals PLOS1, 
Face touching can help uh, deal with anxiety and discomfort, maybe comforting, the, the report said. We might think we want to touch our face because of a perceived itch or a, uh, to groom ourselves, but research suggests we're actually doing it because we're somehow uneasy or unsettled. Touching our faces is also thought to be a, a, a way to... Uh, try to avoid being distracted. In a study on face touching, researchers concocted ways of trying to distract study participants during a difficult mental task and found that the human test subjects increasingly touched their faces when their attention was distracted um, and they needed to refocus. So it's kind of an interesting thought. Well, unfortunately, the things we touch the most often uh, can only be filthy, such as our beloved smartphones, which we probably touch uh, as soon as we watch our uh, wash our hands, colonies of bacteria were discovered on the vast majority of healthcare workers' cell phones. In a study of ninety three percent of the phones studied, were found to be crawling with germs. Crawling that doesn't sound very appealing. Most non healthcare workers' phones were also dirty, with fifty eight percent of them home. Uh, to microbes, said the study published by the Iranian Journal of Microbiology. Mobile phones are not only capable of transferring uh, messages, but also are disease-producing microbes. So how do you clean them sufficiently? While many people fear being sneezed on or coughed at, uh, there's plenty of convincing evidence that shows just how easy it is for a virus to enter through well, face touching. Some viruses can survive for days on hard surfaces, just waiting to be picked up by a new finger. One study in the Journal of Hospital Infection found flu virus persisting on hard surfaces in flu patients' hospital rooms. The virus was found on a computer mouse, a bed, na- a bed rail, rather, wall, sofa, clothes. In one case, the virus survived on a surface even after the room was cleaned and left empty for 72 hours before it was tested. Viruses are also common in daycare centers. One study found more than half of tested surfaces were contaminated with flu virus. Another said respiratory viruses were omnipresent, especially on the toys. Sometimes it may not be the uh, droplets in the sneezes and coughs that are most infectious. Instead, the virus is in the snot and the infected mucus is probably what helps to spread from person to person and hand to hand. Surgical masks, they don't cover the eyes and people wearing masks and sometimes get an itch on their nose. And if they rub their nose through their mask, they're likely to rub their eyes. Viruses are very happy infecting through the eyes as well as through noses and mouths. So what can people do to break the habit? It's not going to be easy. And some of these ideas can probably sound weird. Nonetheless, people have kicked other habits commonly uh, now seen as gross. Well, start being mindful when you do touch your face, catching yourself when and preferably before you do it. If you catch yourself before touching your face, consider folding your hands or doing something else with them. Suggest um, one skin beauty care website. Got an itch? Try to ignore it. If that's bothersome, wash your hands, then scratch it, then wash your hands again. Or buy sterile wooden tongue depressors to use <laughs> as a tool to scratch itches. Perhaps consider wearing gloves. The latest uh, food safety gloves can also be used on smartphone screens. And gloves might make it more conscious about uh, touching your face or make you more conscious. Don't get discouraged if it seems hard to learn. Of course, keeping your hands clean is essential. Hand washing with soap and water for 20 seconds is effective at killing germs. Bleach-based wipes also work. And wipe down your phone. Your hand sanitizer with at least 60% alcohol can be effective in killing some viruses, including the new coronavirus, but can be ineffective with other viruses, according to UCLA Dr. Yang. Well, there is a bright spot in all those um, for all those who master a touchless lifestyle. There was a substantially lower risk of community-acquired influenza infection for people in the uh, 
a Chinese province of Fujian, uh, who often wash their hands, rarely touch their faces, and receive the annual flu shot, according to a study published in the journal Medicine. Most of the flu transmission analyzed in that study was probably caused by touching contaminated surfaces and putting dirty fingertips in their mouth, nose, eyes, or other places. So there you have it. Stop touching your face and other things. Just put some apple cider vinegar on your fingertips. That would probably do absolutely nothing. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We were talking about the uh, coronavirus or COVID-19. And one of the things they say, you need to call your doctor if you develop a fever, you have a cough, or you have difficulty breathing, and let them know if you've been in close contact with a person known to have COVID-19, or if you live in or have recently traveled to an area where the virus has spread. And that's not always uh, necessary because we found people who are not connected to travel who have contracted uh, the virus. But if you think you're infected, using a telehealth helps to prevent spreading the virus. Um, so contacting them through that means is probably the best thing uh, to consider. Well, a cruise ship that's linked to the coronavirus is being held off the coast of California to test passengers on board. It actually came from uh, Hawaii on its way to San Francisco, returning there. 11 passengers and two, 10 crew members have reported flu-like symptoms, so there is concern. Uh, the Princess Grand cruise ship was scheduled to arrive in San Francisco tonight, or rather last night, but officials requested that it delay its return until the U.S. Coast Guard and the CDC coordinated testing of passengers. Well, the plan was for the ship to remain in international waters off the coast of California while a helicopter flew tests on board and then returned the samples to the laboratory for testing. Last month, the ship cruised from Mexico to San Francisco, and three people on that cruise tested positive for the virus. Officials are trying to track down about 2,500 people throughout California who disembarked from that ship because they could be at risk of contracting coronavirus as well. So, again, 21 people who are showing possible symptoms of the coronavirus on board that ship uh, right now, I was uh, listening to a news conversation uh, earlier in the day and they were suggesting one of the cruise ships. It was a princess cruise ship was hoping uh, that they could return to service in uh, in 30 days. I'm not sure who's going to be on board, who's going to want to travel until this thing is uh, is in hand. But nonetheless, that was their hope. Well, we'll see what happens. Meanwhile, Apple CEO Tim Cook is discussing the coronavirus and its impact on Apple and the evolving educational demands of jobs in America. Well, the virus may lead to a shortage of iPhones as well as replacement parts, primarily because those parts are not made here. Apple has warned retail employees about shortages, which would be an indication that the coronavirus is having an impact on the company's supply chain, according to Bloomberg, not the individual, the conglomeration. Apple is saying shortages could last as long as two to four weeks. It will take some time, but overall, he thinks uh, this is a temporary condition, not a long-term kind of thing. Um, Apple is fundamentally strong, and that's how they see it at this point. Some Apple stores have also noticed a shortage of individual parts, as employees uh, told Bloomberg that was interviewing them. Last month uh, in an interview, Cook talked about Apple's ability to get parts, saying our supply chain is relatively important in China, but we have uh, great business in Korea and suppliers there and suppliers in Italy and great business there as well. Well, of course, Italy is now one of the 
epicenters of an outbreak of the coronavirus. So that's probably off the list, as is uh, South Korea. Apple suppliers uh, Foxconn and Dialogue Semi have commented that the China-based supply chain should be mostly back in action by the end of this month. So we'll see what happens. Apple has now reopened 38 of its 42 retail stores in China after the virus-related uh, closures that occurred earlier. Uh, interestingly, I think I mentioned it earlier on the program that there is a shortage of uh, wedding dresses. You know, when you are getting married and you order a dress, typically they want to have at least uh, eight months to a year or more uh, for that dress to be assembled elsewhere and for you to be able to have that first fitting. Um, well, that's been impacted by the coronavirus because places where dresses and fabric is made has um, been impacted by the coronavirus and people working together. So a rather interesting uh, observation there as well. Well, the legislative standoff has uh, hobbled activity in the Oregon Capitol, but that's not stopping partisans on either side from action. Well, as the Republican walkout continued to threaten the fate of the 2020 legislative session, uh, a new recall effort emerged against one of the absent lawmakers, Senator Chuck Thompson of Hood River. If organizers can gather enough signatures in his Democrat-leaning district, he could face an election or remove him from office. At the same time, the Oregon Republican Party has filed a campaign finance complaint against no more costly walkouts. It's a coalition and political action committee that's run an ad critical of absent Republicans. Well, the complaint filed yesterday with the Oregon Secretary of State alleges that the group hasn't appropriately reported its expenses under state law. Hmm. Well, we'll see what happens there. Well, the flurry of activity comes as legislation, uh, legislative action rather, has ground to a screeching halt in Salem since Republicans in the House and Senate fled last week to block climate change legislation. Democrats have been unable to muster the two thirds quorum needed to conduct business. If no agreement is reached by Sunday, some suggest today the 2020 legislative session is in danger of ending with a whimper when its uh, constitutional deadline passes. Well, Democrats on Wednesday signaled that they'd uh, made no headway in their regular communications with GOP leaders, said um, Herman, um, no, I guess it's Senate President uh, Peter Courtney, who spoke with Senate Minority Leader Herman Batzeiser, or something like that. Uh, there is no movement at all. The same can't be said for extracurricular efforts surrounding the boycott. Yesterday afternoon, a Hood River resident named Laura Dunn launched a recall petition against uh, the representative there because of his role in the walkout. Senator Chuck Thompson broke his promise to represent us in the legislature, she wrote in a prospective uh, petition. He stopped going to work but still collected his taxpayer-funded salary and daily stipend. He must be recalled and replaced by someone who will show up and fight for our jobs, our schools, our health care, and our future. Of course, all of that wasn't being done in the legislature up to that point, although there were some important decisions to be made. In order to uh, force a recall election, her petition effort has to gather 9,025 valid signatures by the 2nd of June, according to the Secretary of State's office. Uh, Thompson's district stretches from the suburbs of Portland east to uh, Hood River. The district contains about 7,000 more registered Democrats than Republicans, but non-affiliated voters make up the largest block in that district. A call to uh, Thompson wasn't immediately uh, returned, but the senator had previously told uh, uh, reporters that he planned to head for warm weather if a walkout occurred and that he'd packed polo shirts and shorts. 
Well, um, Dunn, the petitioner, a speech pathologist who serves on the board of the Columbia Area Transit, said she talked to a lot of people before deciding to file the recall petition. And she acknowledged she's potentially working with groups like Our Oregon, a labor-backed organization that is a big player in Oregon's progressive politics. Well, the petition marks the fourth recent effort to target a state elected official for recall. Last year's two sometimes um, dueling campaigns tried unsuccessfully to recall Governor Kate Brown. And last September, the group Timber Unit launched a failed attempt to recall Representative Tim, uh, Tiffany Mitchell of Astoria. None of those efforts succeeded in gathering enough signatures to spur a recall election. Well, the complaint against no more costly walkouts hinges on Facebook ads the group has purchased since late January. According to the website, more than $9,000 has been spent on ads to date. Republican Party officials point out that an affiliated political action committee was only created last week, and they say that runs afoul of state law. Well, we'll see what happens in the state of Oregon. The walkout, I understand, is going to end soon, as uh, at least one uh, report suggested that the Oregon tax, carbon tax, the 72-cent gas tax, uh, was set to die today. Uh, writing in the Oregonian that the special 35-day short, uh, super short legislative session is expected to end on March the 8th, which means if the carbon tax bill were to be heard and protesting Republican lawmakers were to return to the building tomorrow, there is not enough time for the bill to go through the normal process to become law. Republicans need to return to today uh, to the legislature for the carbon tax to survive. Lawmakers can change the rules to speed legislation through the process, but that requires a higher consensus vote threshold where both parties have to agree um, to pass the requirement. That's not likely to happen. As a result, Thursday also likely spells the end of the line really for everything at this point, according to uh, Senator Michael Dimbro from Portland and a longtime proponent of the cap and trade or cap and tax uh, legislation. So this may be the end of the line, but there is a rumor circulating uh, in Salem. The leading rumor there now uh, among insiders and lobbyists in the Oregon state capitol uh, is the possibility of a special session for mid-March or May. A special uh, legislative emergency session should be called, they are arguing, to force Republican lawmakers back into the building Uh, As the lawmakers uh, who are protesting the Democrat led majority shutting out voters from having a public vote on the controversial and wide sweeping cap and uh, trade carbon tax, however you want to refer to it, Senate Bill 1530 um, to move forward. Well, one of the uh, plans discussed is calling lawmakers back immediately beginning in mid-March, the week of the 16th to the 20th. This would be after the important political candidate filing deadline of March the 10th and voter pamphlet statement deadline of March the 12th. Another plan being discussed would be to wait until after the May primary uh, by hosting the emergency session in late May. Uh, It seems such a a, a stretch that uh, Governor Kate Brown, Senate uh, President Peter Courtney and House Speaker Tina Kotek would go to such great lengths in order to block a public vote on a $700 million carbon tax since this uh, carbon tax or cap and trade, Senate Bill 1530, would raise uh, gas prices 72 cents, utility prices 13 percent, and raise uh, close to a billion in new taxes. It only seems fair to involve the public who will have to pay for it for the rest of their lives. Now, keep in mind what this is all about isn't just the cap and trade, the the details in the legislation, the cap and tax, as Republicans would refer to it. But because it is a declared emergency, that means that uh, voters in the state of Oregon would not have the opportunity to weigh in on this for at least 
two years. So that's part of what's frustrating to lawmakers. It literally uh, prevents Oregonians from having an opportunity to respond if it were to pass. Also, in a short legislative session like this, there's less time for Oregonians to weigh in uh, during the process uh, before a vote is to take place. So all of this uh, sort of pending uh, in the in the Capitol. All right. How much time do I have? Am I? I'm done. I'm done. Okay, we're going to take a quick break, but we'll be back to wrap things up. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on ninety three point nine KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to the final segment of the Georgine Rice Show. Today being Thursday, tomorrow will be Friday. That means we're going to take a look at the lighter side of the news and looking forward to that. We'll also share with you our interview of the week. Uh, and James Blend will join me at least for part of the program on Thursday as we do just that. Also want to remind you this Saturday is Arise, Ignite, Compassion. Uh, that is going to be at Cedar Mill Bible Church all day Saturday from 8.50 to 4 o'clock p.m. And you can go to the website westernseminary.edu slash ignite for all the important details. Uh, walk-ins are welcome. Uh, but again, the website is a source of information for everything you'll need to know about uh, Ignite. It's going to be a great, uh, great time of uh, worship together with Lisa Reef and the Ignite worship team. A Joy of Dance is going to be there. The Brown Sisters will be um, will be performing. Bethany Allen is the keynote speaker, but there are uh, opportunities for breakout sessions uh, twice in the course of the day. So again, go to the website westernseminary.edu slash ignite for all the important details. That's coming up this Saturday. I even get to teach one of the uh, breakout sessions, so I'm looking forward to that. Tomorrow, uh, as I mentioned, it's Friday, so we won't have a guest. I was ready to launch into announcing one. Uh, we will uh, take a look at the uh, the lighter side of the news. Uh, I did want to mention a couple of top news stories. The president is set to take the stage with Fox News' uh, Brett Baer and Martha McCallum, um, which is his first town hall of this election season. This is where you sit down. There's a small audience. You have the two uh, moderators, Brett Baer and Martha McCallum, and the president fields questions from the audience and from these two individuals. It's perhaps the most useful sit down with candidates. And there has been throughout the, uh, the last several weeks opportunities. I think Mike Bloomberg was the last one who had the sit down this town hall, but there were others. Pete Buttigieg has done it and, and others. Uh, so that's coming up tonight. If you're interested on Fox news um, also um, there's an interesting documentary. It's uh, new in which president, former president Bill Clinton uh, discusses uh, his the story behind his impeachment and explains what led him to the activity that led ultimately to uh, the impeachment hearings and so on. A uh, rather interesting um, expose, I suppose, but in his own words, he offers explanation. Also, we've been, spent a lot of time focusing on Super Tuesday, uh, the top of the ticket for the Democrats and the Republicans, but there were down ticket candidates as well. And there was an interesting uh, set of candidates who were attempting to join uh, the ranks of the squad, as they are uh, called, none of whom, um, especially under the um, supervision, if you will, of Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, none of them did well in this um, this run up, uh, an interesting element uh, in this this effort to regain um, control, or I, sh- I should say expand control uh, in the House. Some interesting stories. We've been talking about the Oregon legislature and Republicans who have been out 
um, declining to participate in what would have been an up or down vote, presumably, on the cap and tax, cap and trade, however you want to refer to it, in the Oregon legislature that would have increased our the price of gasoline in the state by 72 percent and utilities by 13 percent. Well, the top Republican in each chamber of the Oregon legislature issued statements uh, today that their caucuses are willing to return to the Capitol on Sunday. The final day lawmakers can do business this session to approve emergency budget bills. But Democrats also certainly won't take them up on their offer. They've already stated repeatedly that they will only waive the rules to allow emergency votes on all pending bills, not a select few. All pending bills, that would include, of course, cap and trade. Well, Democrats are pretty strong about if uh, there's a rule suspension, it's universal. Mark, uh, Mark Hass uh, Senator Hass uh, told the Oregonian, Democrats have said since before the session began on the 3rd of February that their top priority is to pass a climate protection bill, which Republicans vehemently oppose. Uh, primarily, they oppose Oregonians uh, not having the opportunity to weigh in on it. House Speaker Tina Kotek reaffirmed today that Democrats would not agree to a last minute floor session where Republicans would get to cherry pick which bills live and I. The only deal I will agree to is if Republicans in both chambers return and agree to take a floor vote on every bill that has earned support through the public process that governs our legislative body. Well, Oregon's climate bill on track uh, to die today, unless the Republicans return, um, unless there's some special effort to expedite the rules. Republicans would love to vote on emergency bills to allow state millions uh, to flow toward flood relief, wildfire prevention, college construction projects, homelessness relief, and more for at least two reasons. First, it would prevent Democrats from campaigning against them on grounds that they refuse to show up for work until the end. Perhaps more importantly, they could get badly needed money flowing to projects in their hometowns and in their own districts. Well, House Republican leader Christine Drazen made a point of saying Democrats have listed their priority bills, uh, budget bills, and Republicans in the House are willing to, to go along. The House Republican caucus broadly agrees that the funding priorities identified in yesterday's press release from the speaker um, the House Republicans will provide a quorum and the rules suspension necessary to pass these funding priorities on Sunday, March the 8th, before the legislature is constitutionally required to adjourn. Well, Oregon Republicans uh, walked out and it's delayed the Umatilla flood aid, one of the important issues they would uh, very likely uh, offer a thumbs up on dangling participle. Oregon Senate Republican leader Herman um, Bartziger uh, Jr. said in a statement after a tumultuous session, Senate Republicans are willing to attend the Sunday floor session to pass emergency budget bills, uh, uh, citing the relief of uh, flood victims in eastern Oregon. Democrats have won super majorities, by the way, in both chambers of the Oregon legislature, so they can pass legislation including tax bills without a single Republican vote. The only power Republicans have to deny Democrats from passing legislation is to stay away, to deprive them of a quorum. If, if the House members' uh, cases in defiance of subpoenas to return. Well, Democrats have pointed out that lawmakers have flexibility under Oregon's Constitution to continue their legislative session past Sunday if Republicans join Democrats in voting to extend by five days at a time. Well, that requires a two-thirds vote, the same bar for reaching a quorum to hold floor votes, which is why Democrats would need Republican support. My guess is sine die on Sunday. Once again, uh, tomorrow we'll take a look at the lighter side of the news. I hope you will join us. I want to thank James Blind for producing, Clark Hilton for engineering today's program, and thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. 
Have a great night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ.